So Psalm 73, Andrew and, uh, and Jenna just read from a portion of it. Uh, written by this man named Asaph. He was one of King David's worship leaders. Uh, he gave us 12 psalms in the Bible. Most of them are clustered together. Psalm 73 to 83 are all conveniently put together. And then Psalm 50 is his too. It's like a little puffy cloud that's away from mom and he's skittering across the sky alone. I don't know why that is. But spend some time with Asaph this week and read these 12 psalms. Have him over for dinner Invite him to spend the night and, and walk with him because his, his, his faith, his, his walk with Christ is, is so unique. And what's neat about this psalm, Psalm 73, is it takes us on a journey. Many of the psalms do this, where the writer begins in one place and then ends in another. And I was thinking as I was looking at this song, psalm a couple weeks ago that it reminded me of two classic psalms from songs from my, my youth. When Asaph begins this psalm, it's, it's, it reminded me of that song, You've Lost That Loving Feeling. Anybody, y'all know that song? Anybody want to come up and sing it? No? That's what Asaph is like at the beginning. And he's really struggling. But then by the end of the song, and you heard some of the words as they were read. He's singing a brand new song. He's singing that great song, I can't live if living is without you. And I'm definitely not trying that one because that's like up here. But it's unbelievable how he, he takes this journey. So let's, let's walk with Asaph through this psalm, and, uh, and, and I believe God will speak to our hearts today. Each one of us is somewhere between these two songs today. Some of you are maybe over by the, the song uh, that you've lost that loving feeling. That's where you're at today. And maybe some of you are on the other side. Wherever you're at, God's going to speak to us. So let's do a quick flyover of the psalm. I want to make sure you get the story first. And then there's a few lessons that Asaph is going to teach us. So verse 1, he starts, he starts out on the right foot. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. All right, so far so good. But then verse 2, as for me, my feet had stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for, for I was envious of the arrogant. Something has happened to Asaph. It's causing him to question his faith in God. And he, t and he tells us what that is right away. Verse 3, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Skip down to verse 12. Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. What's at the heart of Asaph's struggle here? He's watching godless people, people who don't care about faith, and, and he's seeing that they're living these lives of leisure and prosperity and happiness and health. Meanwhile, the godly ones... The ones who are going in church, the ones who are reading their Bibles, who are pushing against sin, they're getting the short end of life's stick, or so it seems to, to Asaph. We're not immune from these thoughts, are we? You know, when the, the doctor's report comes back and says it's positive, when the job is, is lost or the job is not found, when the child becomes prodigal, when the car says, that's it, I'm all done, folks, when the tree falls in the hurricane on your car and your house... 
And, and you say, wait, wait a minute, God, I thought you were looking after us. How many of you have had thoughts like that at any point in your spiritual journey? We know what Asaph is talking about. And then to make matters worse, you, you look at people around you that you know don't have a God thought in their bodies, and that, you know they're driving the better cars, and, and then you watch a show like uh, Hollywood Extra, thumb through People Magazine, and, and, you, and you see these beautiful smiling celebrities living glamorous, pain-free, problem-free lives. I saw a show not too long ago. It was a show. I could not believe this. I didn't watch the whole thing once I saw what it was. They were basically see, seeing which uh, celebrities had the best body parts. So who had the best feet? And who had the best legs? And who had the best tush? And that was the whole show! And you know, all good fun, you think, except for the millions of Americans watching this who run right to the mirror to look at their eyebrows and their legs and their feet. <sighs> like Asaph, we think, these are the wicked. Always at ease. So when a, when a Christian, when you and I come to this place where we start doing a, a cost-benefit analysis of following Jesus, and we say to ourselves, okay, this is what I get for believing in Jesus, and this is what they get for not believing in Jesus, it leads us to thinking like Asaph did. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. What is he saying? He's saying, God, it's all a waste following you, believing in you, reading my Bible, going to church. Why bother? He's being honest. And we said that's one of the things about Asaph that really stands out. Well, then we come to a part in the psalm where we really have to pay close attention to Asaph because now he's going to tell us how he gets out of this awful place. Let's pick it up at verse 15 where he says this, If I had said, I will speak this way, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until... I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And at last, there's this breakthrough in Asaph's, Asaph's thoughts. He walked into church and he began to, to, to turn over in his, in, in, his, in his mind. This is my life with God. This is life without God. This is God's way. This is the world's way. And as he does this, as he, as he really thinks it through, this fog of despair and de de depression vanishes. His vision clears, and he begins to see the truth of everything that he struggled with up till now. How when, he was, when his in it, he was in his funk, he was only looking at one part of life. He forgot to see the big picture, the eternal picture. And then he saw these people that he'd been envying, breezing through life, without a single God thought, seeming to be so happy, with perfect legs, perfect feet, perfect tush, and then he realized, you know what? Their lives weren't as all together as it seemed. And even if they were happy for a moment, well, that happiness wasn't going to last because there can be no lasting happiness outside of God. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. He's talking to God. How could I have even thought of walking away, Asaph says. It's following the Lord that gives my life its highest purpose and its greatest dignity. And then verses 24 and 26, Asaph affirms 
reaffirms his love for God. Words, I can never read these words often enough. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you'll receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I can't live if living is without you, is what he's singing right now. So, that's the flyover. What lessons does Asaph have to teach us this morning? Well, if you've lost that loving feeling, here's the first thing that Asaph would, would say to us. He would say this. This is a lesson in Psalm 73. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to ask questions of my faith. Let's talk about this for a minute, this relationship between faith and doubt. Because no doubt, some of you have been taught that it's wrong to doubt. That you, you shouldn't question uh, God or question your, your faith. If the Bible says it, I believe it, and... Oh, you haven't heard that saying? If the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. You ever, that's, that's what I was taught as a kid. Don't question your faith. And then you read Bible verses like James chapter 1, verse 6, where James writes, The one who doubts is like the waves of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not think that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded person, unstable in all his ways. Woohoo! Don't doubt. So how do we make sense of this? It's important to understand what James is talking about here. He's talking about a person who is settled in his state of doubt. He's a double-minded person. That's his identity. He is double-minded. We might call people like this professional doubters. I've met people over my life, as I've talked to people over the years, who have announced themselves as seekers. They've said this to me. They've heard I'm a, I'm a Christian or a pastor, and they say, well, I'm a, I'm a seeker. As though that's the end of the conversation. And I'm supposed to stand back and go, oh, you're a seeker. Turn to your neighbor right now or the one you're with and go, I'm a seeker. And say it like in a posh kind of way, because when you announce that you're a seeker, you're saying you're philosophically astute. You're so open-minded. You're so avant-garde to be a seeker. But uh, the point is, when you talk that way, is you're not really a seeker. You're doing what James said. You're not seeking anything. Because what's the point of seeking? It's to find C.S. Lewis uh, said, the point of thirst is to compel you to find something to drink. You don't go around, I'm thirsty. No, to, to be thirsty stinks. You're desperately looking for something to quench that thirst. And the point of doubt, the point of asking sincere, honest questions is to lead you to truth. The Old Testament saints question God all the time. Remember Abraham? With God, God is going to go and he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham has the thought, oh my goodness, I wonder if some of the righteous people are going to get swept away. I don't want God to do that. God, and he's, do you remember the story? He walks along God and he tries to talk him down. God, uh, if there's 50 righteous people in there, you won't do it, will you? God says, nope. How about 40? And and and. Abraham talks him down to ten and then says passionately to God, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham questions God right and left. Moses, talking to God in the bush, by the way. This is really funny when he, he's talking to a bush. 
I was talking to a bush the other day. Did you know that? It wasn't God. It was a big black rat snake who was circling through the bush. And I, I happened to see him. And after I got over my, my being startled, I, I talked to him. I said, oh, what are you doing in the bush? Are you, are you hiding yourself to get me? Thank you, by the way, for taking care of all the mice around here. I, I was talking to him. Moses is talking to the bush. The bush has just told him to go to Egypt and to say, let my people go. And what were some of the questions that Moses asked him? Why do you want me? What do I say? What do they say? You didn't see God. Just one question after another. It's okay to do that. Job in his sufferings questions God. Job asks, why is life given to someone who wants to die? Just let me die, God. Habakkuk questioned God. God, what are you doing when the wicked swallow up the, swallow up the one more righteous than, than, than me? Asaph is in more than good company. And of course, you remember Jesus from the cross. What did he cry out? Quoting David, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So think this through with me. Why is doubt good? Why can doubt be good? couple quick answers come to mind. Here's one. For starters, doubt can protect you. Doubt can protect you. Paul, on one of his missionaries, went to a town called Berea. Luke, the author of Acts, writes about it in Acts 17. It says of the Berean Jews that were there, it's the first time they've heard about Jesus. And Luke writes, they, the Bereans, received the word with e eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if what Paul was preaching was true. I mean, what if Paul was a false preacher, a false teacher? There were plenty of them running around. How would they know? So they put Paul's message to the test to see if he's the real deal. Only after weighing the evidence of his message do they receive his word. Did you catch that? How many of you have seen uh, Waco on Netflix? A couple of you have watched that. You should watch that. About the Branch Davidian cult led by David Koresh. To watch this and to see how people can reach a place where they surrender their heart, their will, even their wives to someone who comes along claiming to be Jesus. That's an eye-opener. That's an education that you, you need to, to make because there are, there are more David Koresh's out there. There are more David Koresh's coming. Jesus said so. There will be people coming claiming that I am he. And so the moment that David Koresh the first time ever said, I am the Lamb of God, that should have been the point when people hit the exits. No, God bless the Berean saints for their willingness to doubt. And uh, what they did, we should get in the habit of doing. Test everything. Don't just say, oh, Pastor Barry, he's, he's from Iowa. We can trust everything those Iowans say. And he's got that big spot. Test everything. Doubt. How can doubt be good? A second thought. Doubt can uh, strengthen your faith by driving you deeper into truth. Doubt can strengthen your faith by driving you deeper into truth. I shared with you that story last week of how in college, for a time, I was part of a cult-like church myself which was pretty wacky. It was a church that taught me that if I had enough faith, I'd be healed of all my sicknesses. I'd get rich and prosper. I'd live a victorious life. I'd go from strength to strength. It was going to be glorious, you and Jesus. And they had all kinds of scriptures they used to support that teaching. But their devilish doctrine, and that's what it was, was literally written into my skin, this psoriasis that I had. 
that just got worse and worse when I threw away my medicines the way they told me to. And I began to doubt. I began to suspect that I was being hoodwinked. So what happened? I'll tell you what happened. It drove me deeper into Scripture. Deeper into fellowship with believers from other churches. And suddenly I saw it. My goodness, they're only giving me part of the Bible. They're twisting Scripture. Their gospel is, is fake. There's not only fake news, there's fake good news. Yes? Guess what else happened? That doubting didn't make me sour against Christianity. It didn't drive me further away from Jesus. No, in my searching and my studying, it helped me to see how, how sturdy and robust real Christianity is. And that in comparison to this phony thing I was, I was a part of, this real Christianity had stood the test of time, transforming men and women by the power of the real gospel for more than 2,000 years. And seeing that and growing in that, my love for Jesus and my determination to follow him just grew stronger and stronger and stronger. And why? Because I doubted. And my doubt propelled me to dig deeper and study harder, and the end result was growth. And this is what Asaph does in Psalm 73. And we get to see this journey right before our eyes. He begins to doubt. I've lost that loving feeling, he says. He wrestles then with God, with his doubts. And then when it's all said and done, he says, Whom have I in heaven but you? So, that's lesson one. Here's a second lesson we learn in the psalm. Asaph would say to us, When you've lost that loving feeling, walk into the sanctuary. Actually, run into the sanctuary. Remain in fellowship. He says he was trying to figure it out on his own, and he couldn't do it. It was oppressive to me, he said, trying to figure out why are the, those that don't follow God living better lives than us. I don't get it, God. And, and he says, it was oppressive to me until I walked into the sanctuary, and then I got it. This is so very important, what Asaph tells us here. The temptation that we face when God seems to have withdrawn from us, what, what's the temptation we face to... Withdraw from God. Don't we? We want to cop an attitude with God. Just how you're going to treat me? Now I'm going to, this is how I'm going to treat you. See this Bible, God? Yeah! I'm not going to church. I've got to be careful the aerosols. I will be a little more sedate. How many of you relate to that? You ever have kids? They don't like what you just told them, mom and dad, and they have this hissy fit right in front of you, and they become this little monster. And what are they trying to do? They're trying to get you to say, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you're hurting so much. I changed my mind. Yes? And parents, so help me if there's any of you in this room or anybody watching and you do change your mind. Oh, we have to talk afterwards. Is God fooled by this? Is, is, is God, can we make God feel bad by having a tantrum with him? No. When we close up our Bibles, when we walk away from church, you know what we do? We make it a thousand times worse. That's what we do. And here's why. Do you know what you find in the sanctuary when you walk into it? Look around the room. And you look at home. You find each other. You find people. The Lord mediates his presence to us through people. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered, what? There I am, in your midst. 
when you have a barn of trouble plopped right down on, 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 on you. You can't get that barn off on your own. And I saw this video this week. That's the reason I'm thinking of barns of 300 Amish people. Anybody, any of you see this video? They're moving a barn, 300 of them. So you watch this video and you see this barn moving along the ground. And you see little tiny legs. They're like ants. It's the most funny thing. That's what happens when you walk into the sanctuary. You can't get those barn of troubles off of you on your own, but together. You listen to my story of how here I was in this cult, uh, cult group and I studied. And I don't want you to get the impression that I did all that on my own. No. In fact, very little of it was done on my own. It was the people God placed around me that made all the difference for me. Like Janice. Yes, my Janice, who's not here today. She, uh, she has a little procedure tomorrow, so she has to socially isolate from all you guys. And then when I get home, because I've been with you guys, she has to socially isolate from me. It's going to be a long day. Well, Janice... We first met, I don't know if I've told you that story, but we first met in a campus group of Christians from different churches, and we were bringing in to the University of Iowa Christian artists and musicians and bands that were the, the top flight Christian musicians back in the time. I mean, you need to know, you need to appreciate that long before there was Chris Tomlin and, and long before there was Mercy Me, there was Larry Norman and Phil Keggy, long before there was Casting Crowns, and third day, there was Petra. Anybody heard of Petra? And second chapter of Acts. And these guys, man, they, they carved the trail through the woods for us today. These guys took all the arrows, and I mean that. Back in these days, 80s and 90s, there were worship wars in church. Churches were splitting over music. There were nationally known speakers who were going around the country teaching seminars on why rock music was of the devil. And did you know that if you play Stairway to Heaven backwards on your record player, you'll hear, worship the devil. And everybody went home at the seminar and we, we did the backward, backwards thing with the record album and you worship the devil. Did you hear that? Oh, Crazy. Oh, but I, I, I digress. Thank goodness for Larry Norman. Thank goodness for Janice. I forgot where I was at. <laughs> when she found out about this church that I belonged to, she marched over to the house. She pinned me to the wall, and she said, Are you crazy? This church is nuts. Can you imagine Janice speaking that strongly to me? I know, those of you that know her probably can't even imagine. Secretly, she was after me. <laughs> But she's not here to defend herself. You're not here. Hi, honey. So I should just move along. Yes, ladies? <laughs> Back away slowly. <laughs> All joking aside, Janice was a messenger sent from God to me. And then I started going to a church, and I went to her. Uh, as I went there, I met her college pastor, a wonderful man named Mario. And his, uh, and his amazing wife, Cindy, and Mario spoke life to me. And as he heard all these crazy things that I had been taught, he began to oh so gently open up God's word to me. And he, and he began to show me, you know, that I'd been misled. And yes, God heals sometimes, but not all the times. Even the mighty Elisha, who did great miracles, he died of a sickness. And even Paul, he did miracles of, of amazing kinds. Even Paul got a thorn in the flesh that God would not take away. 
And Mario opened up Hebrews 11 to me, the hall of fame of faith that tells us straight out, sometimes great faith will cause God to deliver you from suffering, and sometimes God, great faith will, will cause God to just give you strength to endure the suffering. And then when James says, call for the elders of the church when you're sick, and they'll anoint you with oil, Mario showed me that oil could mean ceremonial ointment, but it also means medicine. James is saying, pray and take your medicine. And as Mario would speak with me and, and help me with this, I came to life. Now, this was, this was how, how it happened. I, and what I want you to see is none of this would have happened if I had not walked into the sanctuary. Look at what I would have missed if I had copped an attitude with God and said, well, if that's what churches are like, then I'm done with churches. If that's what Christianity is, I'm done with Jesus. But I didn't do that. I went into the sanctuary and my life was changed. You don't trade in. Guys, listen to me. You don't trade in a bad church for no church. You trade in a bad church for a better church. You don't trade in unbalanced Bible teaching for no teaching. Or maybe Buddhist teaching or New Age teaching. No, you find better, more balanced Bible teaching. And then like Asaph, and like me, you'll find healing. A final lesson I see in this psalm is this. When you've lost that loving feeling, make sure you have a proper theology of the hiddenness of God. That's a mouthful. It's more than you have room for on your notes. Make sure you have a proper theology of the hiddenness of God. Asaph had this idea early on that... His life as a believer in God should be so spectacular, so amazing, that people would look at him so filled with joy and health and well-being, and people would be in awe, and they'd say, Asaph, what is that? He'd say, it's God. Do you want in on this too? That's what Asaph thought. I, I meet a lot of Christians who feel the same way, that, that, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. I need to always smile. I need to always show joy. I can't show people that I've had a bad day and, and, and a bad week and I really need prayer right now. I, I can't let people see how miserable and I'm struggling right now. I so appreciate Andrew's transparency with us. That's Christianity. But instead, what do we do? We say, I, I don't want to ruin anybody's testimony. Uh, my testimony, I don't want to bring anybody down. So we take a, a, this mask and put it on. That's what we say. Look, to follow Christ is a thousand times better than anything else, but not in the way that Asaph first thought. We said last week that if you want to finish life well, you've got to get a few things straight in your mind. One of them is that you're going to suffer in this life. Suffering does not mean God has abandoned you. Here's another thing you've got to get straight in your life. You have to have a proper theology of God's hiddenness. And what do I mean by this? We've got to understand that the Christian life is not one miracle after another. It is not one warm fuzzy after another. There are long stretches of this where we move forward by faith with no obvious, no provable, no sensory indication that God is near. We're not saying you never experience God and we're not saying you can't hear his voice. Not saying that at all. Taste and see that the Lord is good, the Bible says. And there is so much tasting to be had in Christianity. But it's not a continual feast. Not at all. Isaiah, for all his great experiences, think of Isaiah the prophet, 
He had that great vision of God at the beginning of his ministry where he saw the Lord high and lifted up, filling the temple, angels crying, holy, holy. Isaiah was given more prophecies than any Old Testament prophet was of the Christ. He even saw things. God showed Isaiah things that go to the very end of time. The book of Revelation borrows heavily from Isaiah. He had more prophecies, more vivid prophecies, more experiences, more vision than anybody in the Old Testament. But Isaiah says toward the end of his life, he says this to God, truly you are the God who hides yourself. And you know how Isaiah's life ended? Oh, with a great experience. Tradition says that he was martyred in a way I don't even want to say right now because of the children here. That's quite an experience. Again, Paul. Think of Paul who had greater, more numerous experiences than Paul. He healed people. He chased out demons. He, he saw hundreds if not thousands of people brought to faith. Yet for all the experience, Paul said at the end of the day, here in this life, we walk by faith. Not by sight. In this life, we see through the glass darkly. Get a fog at the St. Mary's River this morning, and it's like that. That's what the Christian life is like. Is that you, God? Is that, I, I think that's you. It's kind of like what we're doing with COVID right now. God, I, I think this is you. We're, we're going to go forward. The Christian life is not a constant Cirque du Soleil laser light show. When I wake up in the morning, I don't have an angel handing me a coffee as I get out of bed. You see me over here worshiping sometimes with my eyes closed and my hands, hands up. That's not because, don't you think this, that's not because God is right then stroking me the way I, I pet my cat Maggie. I'm not sitting over there purring with God. You know what I'm doing over there? I am worshiping as an act of faith. And in faith, I am reaching out to my Lord. And I am, like, like Asaph, I'm focusing my mind on him, on the words that I'm singing. I'm saying, Jesus, here I am. Come near. I need you. And this is what Asaph would teach us in the end. The gap between Asaph and God that was bridged in Psalm 73 that takes him from singing, I've lost that loving feeling, to I can't live without you, Asaph bridges that gap, not by an experience. He didn't reach that place because of some great thing that happened with God. It was faith that carried him there. And not blind faith. Oh, I'll just believe. The faith that we have in Jesus Christ, dear ones, is not that at all. This is a faith that is supported by experiences, yes, and, you, and, and those memories you have of times when God was that close, never forget them. Hold them dear. This is a faith supported by those experiences. This is a faith that is propelled by reason. You never unplug your brain to follow Christ. Don't you ever do that. Or I'll come up to you with your brain in my hand and go, What is this? Why did you let it go? Get this back in your head. This is faith that is built on truth. Actual rock-solid fact, evidence, and history. The Kalam constant theory. Hey, Tony? Evidence right and left everywhere you look. The life, teaching, the death, the resurrection of Christ is there for anyone to examine. This is a faith that asks questions 
and works through its doubt. This is a faith, my friends, that tests everything. This is a faith that is nourished by the most remarkable book that has ever been written. This is a faith that is nurtured by walking into the sanctuary and opening up your heart to a group of men and women who become over time brothers and sisters and in some ways closer than your actual flesh and blood brothers and sisters. This is a faith that is fed by a piece of bread and a cup of juice that when we take it with faith points us to a cross and bids us to fall down and worship. And it's in that, that sort of faith that can cause each of us to say, and as we close, repeat these words after me. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but Lord, you are the strength of my life and my portion forever.